Don't call it a comb back. I'll have hair for years. Wake up in the morning feeling like P. Diddy. Hey, what up, girl? Grab my glasses. I'm out the door. I'm gonna hit this city. Let's Before go. I leave, brush my teeth with a bottle of Jack. Cause when I leave for the night, I ain't coming back. I'm talking. Live from the Finley Toyota ESPN Las Vegas studios, this is the Press Box. Wait a minute. He's still in the league? With Granny and Bischoff. You don't fight with honor. No, he did. Warts and all. Let's start the up. Your buds are working. I'm happy. He is being 1100, 100.9 FM. No echo here. It's Ed Jared running the show. Ed and Tyler are going to start off the week with what else? You want to be basketball? The first bite. Is TJ Otzelberger about to blow up the roster? Uh, well, uh, I think he make, needs to make a lot of moves. You and I were there yesterday, Tyler. Uh, another season gone nowhere. Uh, they did dismissed by Utah State, and I'm on board with you. As I wrote it this morning, I don't think they're good enough if they come back intact to uh, get to the NCAA tournament. So, and I, I, I believe this. I want to see what you think about this because I wrote it. If if his expectations in the third year is not to make the NCAA tournament, this is this is no longer UNLV basketball. Then, if if well, your expectations in a third year is not to win that conference or contend to win the conference, go to the tournament, then this is not what people define UNLV basketball as. Well, UNLV hasn't been what people define UNLV basketball yeah, well, as for like eight yeah. years now. But yes, that should absolutely be his expectation. There's no doubt about it. Any any coach that gets hired at UNLV at any point in his third year should be expecting to go to the NCAA tournament. That should be the the plan. That should be the goal of any coach here in his third year or later. Um, and the roster isn't good enough. And I'll give you this quote from Otzelberger last night. Um, he said, I know that with teams, how they fit together is really important. Overall, as I evaluate the talent on our roster, I think we have some individual players that have some talents that they are able to put in play on the court. But for team success, those talents have to fit together really well. Uh, theirs did not fit together really well at any point during this season. I w- I, like, I'm genuinely expecting massive turnover in the roster because I don't know that Bryce Hamilton comes back. I don't know that David Jenkins comes back. And you look at the bottom of the roster, a bunch of the freshmen that didn't play, there's no reason to keep them around if you can bring in better players. Like, I, I'm not going to be surprised if next year we're talking just like this year where it's like, oh, they had seven or eight newcomers. Like, that's probably what they're going to need to do to have any chance at going to the NCAA tournament or even just competing in the Mountain West. Oh, absolutely. And we, we saw it yesterday. And, and the teams, you know, th- there's teams we can already look at. And everything weird happens in the offseason. But, you know, those guards come back in Nevada. He's got transfers sitting out. Um, we saw what Wyoming's been able to do the last two days with a really young team. San Diego State's just going to find a way to be good. Uh, there are teams in that league. Utah State's going to lose Kata, but a lot of those kids come back. Colorado State, if Roddy comes back and the coach comes back. So you can go team to team and see that teams can be better or as good as they are now. I don't see that when I look at UNLV if this is the team. Like you don't I don't say, hey, if this team comes back, man, they're you know, they're gonna be one or two. I don't see that. So I agree with you. He's got to do a lot. And we'll see if he stays. I mean, I, I, look, we talked about the Iowa State thing. Fans love him there. He's twenty nine and thirty. So you must you have to be really, really beloved in a lot of different ways 
more so than what you do in the last years for a Big 12 school or a Big 12 job. And it might be the worst job in Big 12, but it's still a Big 12 job for an AD to stand in front of people and say, hey, this is who I'm hiring. Now, maybe they'll do that, but I'm going to go on the other side where they won't go down his road. And if that's the case, he needs to be a lot better here, which I agree with you means a lot of new faces. And yet again, here we go with UNLV with the turnover. Yeah, and listen, the turnover exists because the teams suck. Like, UNLV's had terrible continuity year to year for nearly a decade now. And it's not be- it's not like UNLV coaches come in and they have a good team and it gets blown up. That's not what happens. UNLV coaches come in and they have a bad team and they're like, well, those guys didn't work. We don't want to do that again. So the whole roster turnover, it's a necessity because the teams haven't been good. Because you've seen years like this where it's like, okay, that was a massive disappointment. Let's not bring all those guys back. Let's bring in some new guys that can hopefully do it. The problem is UNLV hasn't been able to put that together. Like you, this Again, that quote from Otzelberger, how they fit together is really important uh, for teams with success. Those talents have to fit together really well. That's pretty much been the problem for UNLV over the last eight years. They've had really talented players yeah. come into this school, and for whatever reason, the coaches haven't been able to fit them no. together, haven't been able to fit, fit their talents together in a meaningful way that leads to wins, that leads to competing in this conference, and ultimately leads to the NCAA tournament. And that's the problem with this program. The coaches haven't been good enough at putting together rosters over the last eight years. They just haven't. And you can, it's this year with Otzelberger. It's year two with Menzies when he thought he landed a great class with Brandon McCoy, but McCoy couldn't play defense. And then you go back to the Dave Rice era where he had multiple NBA players and couldn't put it together in his last three years because they just... They, they didn't fit well, or, or he couldn't figure out how to fit them. Whatever it is, it all comes back to the coaching. The coaching hasn't been good enough, and Otzelberger, assuming he doesn't get hired by Iowa State, he ultimately, based on his contract, is going to have two years, I would guess, to prove it, but he's he's basically got one year to prove he can do this, or the fan base, if it's not already, is going to be completely turned against him. Did I completely drop out? Yes, uh, you did. If you did, oh. I didn't hear it. I just kept rolling through, Ed. Oh, I got good. you. Yep. I got right. you did, back. Did you, did, you, did you hear my spiel about Iowa State? Uh, yes, we did hear your okay. spiel right. about right. Iowa State. Okay, so I'm with you on all that. I want to ask you something because, you know, I don't know if this has anything to do with anything, but someone mentioned this last night. Is there a correlation? You know, everyone always said, hey, the Mountain West is a weird league. It's the travel. You have to know how to win. You really have to know what your recruiting base is. The last three coaches, whether it be Prelay, uh, Weir, and Osleberger, who've come into this league, have done nothing. I mean, absolutely nothing. And I don't know if it's a fit in this league. I don't know, like, they don't realize or it takes uh, you know, a while to know what a recruiting base is, depending on where you are in this kind of weird league. It might mean nothing, but I think there might be a connection here. And Osleberger's kind of fallen into this, this mode of he's just another guy who kind of came from another place and he hasn't gotten the job done just like those other two. And, and again, now people can say Steve Alford. Well, Steve Alford was at New Mexico. You know, Dutcher was Fisher's assistant for years. Um, you know, Craig Smith, you know, Nico, uh, all these guys either were at Colorado State or coached in this league or had experience in this league. And the last three have done nothing and they had nothing to do with this league. Do you think that has anything to do with anything or is it an individual basis? I thought that was interesting when someone made that point last night. I mean, what what's the idea that the Mountain West is so radically different from well, the rest of college basketball that if you yeah. come from South Dakota State, it's just it's a foreign game here? Yeah. No, I, I, and that's what my point was. I didn't put too much credence in it. Now, their point was, and I think this is every league, that maybe because of kind of where these schools are, you need to know better your recruiting base. Now, Osler has gone local for the most part. 
you know, I, I've said it, you've said it. I don't care if the kid's local or not. Just get people who can play. You know, th- this whole thing about stay local, um, just I always laugh at that. Now, if you stay local and they're all good, that's great. But I, I don't think you should come in and say, hey, I, I, you know, I've got to stay local for whatever reason. Just get guys who can play. So there might not be anything to it. I mean, I think it was just a coincidence maybe that the last three hired in this league had no ties to it and have done absolutely nothing. And, and two, Weir and uh, San Jose State have just been horrible. Osselberger hasn't been horrible. They've been dead flat average, if not below. Um, but if there's nothing to that, he's he's got to do better. The team has to do better. And if he stays, uh, I think a third year is enough. And I know they hate it out there, but I'm sorry. You hire, you fire someone after three years, and you go get into the coach and say it's win now, then you better win, and they haven't won. So then people, other people have to be held accountable. You have got to win in this program. Three years in, next year, you've got to contend for an NCAA tournament berth. I know it hasn't been Union League basketball. They haven't been to a tournament since 2013. But the expectations of that program out there should be that you are contending for the conference and going to the NCAA tournament. And if those aren't the expectations, then you know what? I, I don't know. What, then, then don't t- don't say you're UNLV basketball. The the problem we're going to run into is next year they don't actually compete for the NCAA tournament, but they're better than they were this year, and we get to hear about how they got better, like how you, the Raiders went from seven wins to eight wins, even though they didn't have any chance at the playoffs in the final week. Like that's that's what I think ultimately happens next year. Is again no NCAA tournament appearance and no real sniff of the NCAA tournament, but. Well, we weren't as bad as last season, so that's improvement. Just wait till year four when, in reality, UNLV fans have just been waiting for next year for multiple years. Yeah, I mean, 2013. It's a long time. Uh, you know, look, I, it's not going to help them if he, move, if he goes on. I just don't, I don't believe that because, once again, you're into a coaching search. And then what do we hear? Well, he's got to get his own guys. Well, he's got to rebuild it his own way. I mean, how many times? Can you say that? That's what's going to happen. If he leaves, and again, I'll go back to my Iowa State point, I think the odds are against it only because I don't know what they would sell on him other than people like him there. But if he stay, if he goes, then that's what you get. Well, you can't you can't judge a guy till after two or three years. He's got to get his own players in here. And it just becomes this cycle of consistent average to below average results. Instead of just getting a person you know will stay, you know you can have continuity with, who can build a program, and maybe he's still it. I don't know. I mean, he, he's got to prove it. But that's what would happen if he leaves. That's what we would hear. You know, he's, he's, got, to, he's got to build his program. you got to give him time. A lot of guys out there get a lot of time, and they just haven't won. And some guys don't get much time at all, actually. Uh, would, you, would, would a Steve Alford-type season, uh, what he's done at Nevada the last two years, be acceptable? And, and so what Alford's done... First year, they were 19 and 12, but they had the same record as UNLV, 12 and 6 in the Mountain West. No NCAA tournament. They were 85th in Ken Palm. This year, they're 86th in Ken Palm, 16 and 9. They're 10 and 7 in Mountain West play. If they finished like that, are people happy with that? Next year or this year? Next year. Well, because it's not I, an NCAA you know, tournament team and it's not no. particularly close. Nevada's not no. in the bubble. Nevada's not playing their way in unless they win the whole thing. No. So I don't, I, I don't know how you could be. It's a third year. Now, that, you know, I mean, I'm sorry. I think Alford's one of the best coaches in the conference. He proved it in New Mexico, so maybe he's just a different guy. I mean, just, I don't know. Um, but, again, and, and again, I don't know, uh, and you might, I don't know if it's Musselman or whoever, but you look at Reno, you know where they're at, you know their recruiting base. You know, how, how, how does he have the transfer sitting out that he does and have those guards? 
Like, I, I just, I don't understand how UNLV with, you know, the perceived, all the advantages they have. And I, I truly believe they have a lot more advantages than the Reno has. How is that, how is that possible? I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, like I said, it might be you've gotten kids that have underachieved and you thought they were good and they're not. Uh, but I look at some of the teams in this conference and I'm like, how, how is Colorado State there? You know, how, how, how is Utah State? Now, Utah State, again, they went to Portugal to find their best player. I mean, maybe that, maybe UNLV has to look, you know, more foreign players. I don't know. I don't know the answer to it. But I'm always amazed at some of the programs in this this uh, uh, conference that are better than UNLV. Yeah, I, they, I just, I'm just, I am. They next year need mercenary type players that are coming to play one year. They don't care about what the past has been like, but they say, I, I'm actually good at this sport. Give me the ball. I'm going to take this program yes. to the NCAA tournament, and that's what we're doing for one year. That's what they need. All right, coming up next. Oh, Alan Walsh. Who doesn't love talking about Alan Walsh? Because Alan Walsh certainly loves to talk. You're sitting in the press box with Graney and Bischoff on ESPN Las Vegas. Follow them on Twitter at Ed Graney and Bischoff underscore Tyler. So we will get into Marc-Andre Fleury being placed on the COVID-19 list a little bit later in the show. But the Golden Knights might be without uh, both Marc-Andre Fleury and Robin Leonard for tonight's game in St. Louis. Uh, Pete DeBoer is supposed to talk to the media later today. We'll probably, well, I assume we'll get at least a little bit more information. But who knows? It's the Golden Knights. Uh, But the Marc-Andre Fleury topic to talk about today is Alan Walsh. Because Alan Walsh talked to The Athletic yesterday. And Alan Walsh really hates Pete DeBoer. Um, so I, I want to start with this quote and he, he also responded directly to a story Ed wrote. We'll get to that in just a second, but I want to start with this one where Alan Walsh says when comparing Marc-Andre Fleury losing his starting job in Pittsburgh to Marc-Andre Fleury losing his starting job in here, Alan Walsh said the difference in Pittsburgh was that Mark didn't have his job taken from him. What happened is that he was injured. He had a concussion and missed several weeks. And in the interim, Matt Murray came in and played absolutely out of his mind. Mark understood the situation. You have a goalie who is playing great in my absence. It's just the way it is. Flurry and Matt Murray got along great. There were no issues with the coach. There were no issues with the communication. Everyone was forthright, honest, and respectful in every way. I'm not going to comment on Vegas. I will just say that the way he was treated in Pittsburgh was the way that you would expect a player like Flower to be treated. So Alan Walsh is implying that the Golden Knights are still mistreating Marc-Andre Flurry. Well, it's hard to, you know, it's easy to mistreat a guy when he cut, when he starts every game. Um, <laughs> look, I'm, he wants to, he can say whatever he wants against, uh, you know, uh, his time in Pittsburgh. We, we didn't cover him when he's in Pittsburgh. You can lose your jobs a lot of ways. Coaches sometimes have philosophies of you can't you lose because of injury. And some coaches says, look, especially when it gets to the playoffs or running for a Stanley Cup, this guy's hot. We're going to roll with him, especially at that position in that sport, because that's what we hear all the time. Ride the hot goalie, especially in the playoffs. So, he lost his job. Now, you want to say because it was injury? Go ahead and say that. But at the end of the day, the other guy was playing hot, and he lost his job. Um, I'm not, I don't – like I said, we didn't cover him there. I'm not going to get into that in terms of what he says about what happened to Marc-Andre Fleury in Pittsburgh. I was far more interested in what he said about Vegas because at the end of the day, and we're going to go over this, someone's not saying the truth. And I don't think it's the player here. Uh, I, th- I think it, either he's not talking to his client – and however much this guy tweets about Marc-Andre Fleury, my guess is he calls this guy like 20 times a day, and Fleury Price says, are you calling again? So I don't know what's happening here, but they're saying direct opposite things to media members, and I'm going to side with the player on this one other than the agent. We are still talking about an adult 
who tweeted a picture of his client with a sword between his back or through his back with the coach's name on the on the blade. I mean, clown show 100% with this guy. So whatever he says, I'm not I'm not taking to, to much of a value on. So, if we look at what Pete DeBoer and what Alan Walsh have said. Uh, Ed, you wrote a story last month about Marc-Andre Fleury, and this is the quote that Pete DeBoer gave you. We spent a lot of time analyzing last year and how Fleury got scored on and where and why. There was definitely a plan in place from our goaltending department. Some ideas we thought he could incorporate to fix things. To his credit, he was all ears. The pleasant surprise was his openness to coaching. He acknowledged that last year wasn't the best. He took some adversity that was thrown at him and responded in the way great players respond. He doesn't have his numbers in the Stanley Cups and a Hall of Fame resume by accident. This was in reference to Fleury playing deeper in his crease this season. Now, this is what Alan Walsh said yesterday. It was actually Dave Pryor who was the original goaltending coach for the Golden Knights. It was actually Dave Pryor, when Mark first came to Vegas, who worked with him on staying deeper in the crease and playing the percentages on shots. Dave's philosophy was always to force the shooter to make a perfect shot to score, and less goalie movement is better. I think Mark has always preferred challenging shooters more, and I think he adjusts his game to challenge shooters. Yet at the same time, perhaps stays a little deeper in his crease. But for anyone to say that after 18 years of being an elite goalie in the NHL, that somehow there are adjustments made this year that have fixed him are laugh-out-loud ridiculous. Okay, so he hasn't watched the last several years when he talks about an elite goalie, but he's playing well now. Um, I'll just tell you this. I'll tell you this. Uh, Marc-Andre Fleury recently, whether it's me or to Willie Ramirez and other people who have gotten him one-on-one for stories, has sung a different tune. February 24th, these are exact quotes, and they're on tape, from Marc-Andre Fleury to me. He said, the previous goalie coach wanted me to be much more aggressive. He was talking about Dave Pryor. He said, we have been talking about changes and making changes since the bubble for me to play deeper. I followed up. Was it your personal goalie coach who worked with you on this in the offseason, Marc-Andre Fleury? No, no, no. It was, meaning VGK goalie coach we have right now, Mike Rosati. So you have polar opposite comments here (laughs) from agent uh, sword clown to the player who is saying, no, 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 it was Mike Rosati. And my previous goalie coach here wanted me to be more aggressive in terms of not, you know, staying deep in the crease, being more aggressive outside. So I ask you, who do you believe? What would be the, what would be the, you know, uh, uh, opportunity. Why would Flurry say things that are wrong? Why, why would he be making stuff up? That makes Alan, no sense whatsoever. So basically, yeah. Alan Walsh just called Flurry laugh out loud ridiculous. Yes. Um, but here's what this is Alan Walsh hates Pete DeBoer oh, yeah. so much. Yes. He, so, he hates DeBoer so much that he cannot possibly stand giving Pete DeBoer any level yeah. of credit. For yeah. Flurry playing as well as he's playing this year. Because here's here's what this is. Flurry last year, his save percentage was 905, and his goal saved above average was minus six and a half. Flurry was a bad goalie yes. last season. This year, Flurry is 938 and plus 14.4. He's terrific. S- something changed. Yeah. It yeah. wasn't just, oh, he's a vet and he figured it out. Something yeah. changed because he was bad last year and he's unbelievably good this year and alan walsh cannot stand 
cannot stand that Pete DeBoer might get some credit for that right. by changing the way uh, Marc-Andre Fleury plays. And so he's just going to go on a rampage that's completely wrong. He said yes. Dave Pryor wanted him to play deeper in the crease. No. And if you pay attention, Fleury's... No, Fleury was the most aggressive goalie you've ever seen the last three years under Dave yeah. Pryor. And now he's not. Now he's not all over... Sometimes he is, but now he's not all over the place on every single play. Alan Walsh hates Pete DeBoer, cannot stand any credit whatsoever going to Pete DeBoer, so he's going to fight it with the most factually incorrect argument he can possibly make. Yeah. Uh, I get my quotes. I know I know for a fact in a story Willie's writing, he told he told he told William Ramirez, I stayed in I stayed in Vegas the whole shutdown and the offseason. I couldn't go to Montreal. Obviously, you go into Canada, he has families with small kids. That would be an issue going with COVID. He stayed here all summer. I'll say the quote again. It was goalie coach we have right now, Mike Rosati, who <laughs> made these changes. That's what he said. Why would he say that? Like that makes no sense. Like, I'm going to say this, uh, and it makes and, and it's not true at all. Like, no, he said it. And he said it very plainly and succinctly, and he goes, no. And he also said, my previous goalie coach, meaning Pryor, wanted me to be more aggressive. So, again, these are polar opposites in terms of what might have happened with this guy going from a really you know, bad goalie the last two years to the Vesna uh, candidate to win his first Vesna. He's terrific this year. And the agent is saying something completely opposite. And I'm sorry, once I saw the, once I saw the uh, tweet with the sword in the back, that guy's opinion means nothing to me. You are an adult and supposedly this like professional agent, and you're tweeting that. Now, I will say also this about Flurry. Flurry has never admitted that he knew that was coming out. I don't know if people you know care about that, but he's never said that he knew it was coming out. So, and I always wished he would have one way or the other because I think you know he should have stood up and said something. But when it comes to his play, I'm gonna side with the player here. I'm not gonna side with the agent who, who does things like that. The agent is clearly wrong. What's amazing to me is that Marc-Andre Fleury is widely regarded as one of the nicest human beings anybody yes. has ever talked to in hockey. Yes. And his agent is the biggest jack-off in the sport. Yes, exactly. Like, yeah. how, I mean, how, how? How? I don't understand how that match well, got made. I think Marc-Andre Fleury got him when he was very young, probably you know, the first overall pick. And he's such a really nice guy, he just can't admit, like, uh, this guy, uh, <laughs> swords, clown show, I should move on. And, you know, so he stays with them. And I'm sorry, I, LOL to that guy. Because, you know, if, if, if you're telling me Flurry was mistaken, then, then there's no chance that he was mistaken. He was mistaken of who he, who he was with in the offseason? What is he not? Was he like hallucinating that he was standing there with the Golden Knights coaching staff the entire summer saying, hey, how do we change this? How, do, how can I be better? That's like just made up like a fairy tale? All right, coming up next, Austin Gale from Pro Football Focus joins the show. Joining us now is Austin Gale from Pro Football Focus. Follow him on Twitter at PFF underscore Austin Gale. Austin, how are you this morning? Hey, Austin. Doing great. How about yourself? Uh, good. Uh, love talking quarterbacks, and we've talked the last couple of weeks with you about, you know, do you pay Derek Carr because he's not in that top tier of quarterbacks, but it's, is it better to go with a rookie quarterback? And I'm curious, where does Dak Prescott fall in that conversation for you? Yeah, Dak Prescott, I think is very interesting. I think he isn't, you know, he's paid right now. I think it's like the third highest paid quarterback in the NFL behind Mahomes and Russell Wilson. I wouldn't necessarily put him ahead of guys like Deshaun Watson and maybe some others. I think at his best, he's a top six to eight quarterback in the NFL, maybe top five. 
the top eight quarterback in the NFL, and I think paying him the, paying him the money they did across a four-year deal is, is smart because they're already in a position to win with Dak Prescott because they have a very talented roster. Amari Cooper, C.D. Lamb, obviously, Michael Gallup, very talented. The offensive line is one of the best in the NFL. Like They're in a position to win with a top six to eight quarterback. They have the horses to do it. While when you compare him to a contract like the Las Vegas Raiders handed Derek Carr, that roster is not in a position to win. Defensively, I wouldn't say the Las Vegas Raiders have a single top 15 player in his position. Offensively, they just got rid of three starting caliber offensive linemen, will likely lose Nelson Aguilar to a higher bidder in free agency, and then be starting Hunter Renfro, Henry Ruggs, and potentially Brian Edwards at receiver. Their best player is Derek Carr. And for that reason, it starts to make more sense to potentially move on from Derek Carr, like they did to Khalil Mack, like they did to Amari Cooper, because they're not in a position to win with him. They can't win with Derek Carr because of how bad this roster is. So when you are able to move on from him, say for a first-round pick and maybe an additional pick or player, you can then commit to a rebuild with a quarterback on a rookie contract, whether you're drafting him in 2021 or in 2022. The fact that you know the Raiders did move on from Khalil Mack and gathered those picks, moved on from Amari Cooper, and didn't come out of it with a very you know productive roster, talented roster, is the concern here because now you have a quarterback that I think at his peak, Derek Carr, is top eight to top 12 in the NFL that simply can't win the big dance with the state the the Raiders roster is in. So you walked into my next question because there have been reports, and I'm sure it's from his side, which makes sense because you want as much security as possible, that he believes he deserves an extension. Uh, He has, I believe, two years left on his contract. Tyler can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think he has two years left on his contract. And, I, again, you get to the last year in the contract, you really have to make a decision if you're Derek Carr. Okay, if you're not going to extend me here now, this could be a, this could be an issue. Maybe I don't show up. So you're saying you don't extend him. You, you, you should not give him that security, not as much for him, but that he just isn't in a position to win it. And if you extend him and give him that much money, it's just it's not money sp- uh, spent smartly. I, I think they're in a better position to chase a higher ceiling at the quarterback position by moving on from Derek Carr and trading him again, not because he's not good. I think when you hear you know, Derek Carr trade rumors and those things, a lot of Raiders fans get upset because they're still committed to the fact that Derek Carr is good. And he is good. He's just not good enough to win with the, you know, the, the players the Raiders have right now. I mean, it's not the same situation as Deshaun Watson, but it's somewhat similar in that there is not a good supporting cast in Las Vegas. They can't successfully compete for a Super Bowl in that division with the state of that roster and as good as Derek Carr is. Now, if they had a Patrick Mahomes and Aaron Rodgers or Russell Wilson, things could be different, but they don't. And Derek Carr will never be that level of quarterback. He doesn't have the tools, traits, and all these things to be that good. So chase a higher ceiling at the quarterback position. Use this as an opportunity to trade Derek Carr, likely at the peak of his career. I think you could say the 2020 season was one of the best, if not the second best, behind his 2016 campaign, and get a first-round pick and more for him. I mean, if Carson Wentz, after what we saw last year, maybe the worst quarterback of, in the NFL last year, can get moved for a third-round pick and a future second potential first, you could probably get a first and a second-round pick for Derek Carr, really commit to a rebuild, free up a lot of cap space like they already have, and start to look at 2021 and 2022 options at the quarterback position on a rookie contract. I think that, again, is the closest path to a Super Bowl. Trying to grind it out with Derek Carr, potentially work an extension, and build this roster back up with a lot of supporting talent is going to be so much harder rather than trying to chase the quarterback and find one that's actually a top-five caliber quarterback. Is John Gruden the one coach that could come into a job, have a three-year rebuild, fail miserably, and try another three-year rebuild? I think so. I, I really do. I mean, his leash <laughs> is long. His connection 
with the Davis family obviously runs deep. I don't think Mark Davis wants to decommit from John Gruden by any means. And I think the problem has more been that the decisions the combination of Gruden and Mayock have made, both in the draft and in free agency, have simply not panned out. I think you could argue over the past three years they have been the worst-performing team in the offseason of all 32 NFL teams. You know, what they did when they moved on from Khalil Mack and saved the $90 million in guaranteed money just to hand it to Antonio Brown, Trent Brown, Tyrell Williams, LaMarcus Joyner is not, is not good business. That's not how you do it. And then you look at what they did in the draft, adding a running back in the first round that, again, is playing really well but can only have so much impact on your team. Adding a box safety that Jonathan Abrams is going to be competing for a starting spot in 2021. And then you go into the next year and add Damon Arnett, a less-than-ideal athletic profile with short arms and some off-field concerns. Like, I just don't love the process for how they've added talent. I like trading away Khalil Mack. I didn't love trading away Amari Cooper in exchange for a pick you tra- drafted a box safety for. Like, I think a lot of these decisions have been hard to watch, and I think it's a big reason why they're in the position they are in now. Darn it, Austin. I, I usually can see the short arms. I like to say guys are fast, big, with short arms. You beat me to it. I, 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 this is why we have it. I, I love it. Uh, I love those kind of evaluations. You, you, the guys will tell you that. I usually say Henry Ruggs is fast. Um, I do want to ask you about my, uh, Mike Mayock's uh, statements of they will, in free agency, he thinks it's smart to be um, uh, patient. Now, I'm sure the high-end guys are going to get paid. They always do. Do you believe, though, like he said, I think what he meant is second-level guys with this cap are going to find the market not as inviting as they maybe think they are money-wise. I think what Mayock was saying, and uh, maybe the offensive line, because they uh, seem to have to rebuild it, if you wait, you'll get pretty good players at a smaller rate because they're not going to get what they think. Yeah, no, I think this offseason, some people are seeing it as, you know, you're not, not going to be able to spend big. It's an 8% drop in salary cap from the previous year. But you're going to get a lot of players that are willing to come in on one-year prove-it deals to avoid signing a long-term deal with the cap constraints and unknown cap figures of the future. Obviously, there's an assumption that the cap takes an increase in 2022 and beyond with the new media deals in the NFL, obviously COVID-19, knock on wood, being behind us. But you don't really want to commit to those long-term deals until you see those numbers come through. So I think you could see a lot of talented players sign for one-year deals with contenders. Now, here's the problem. Are the Raiders contenders? No, I think Derek Carr and Darren Waller and I think John Gruden's offensive offensive mastery – give this team seven and nine win type of floor, maybe a six win type of floor. However, they don't have the, the horses or the ceiling to be a nine, 10 win type of team. And that doesn't even factor in them competing in the AFC with the Kansas city chiefs, with the Baltimore Ravens, the, the Cleveland yeah. Browns, the Buffalo bills. Like there are better teams, objectively better teams with objectively better quarterbacks. that are going to be pursuing a super bowl in the AFC in 2021. It's just going to be so difficult to improve this roster enough, even in two years, Come this off season and next off season, to a point where they're actively competing for, competing for a Super Bowl if they continue to kind of uh, tie themselves to Derek Carr. Austin, can we get rid of the franchise tag somehow so free agency can be more fun? My goodness. Not only to you know for that kind of high-level make free agency more fun, but it's also really, really damaging to players. I do think it's unfair for players to have to go through kind of this you're playing for us no matter what type of situation. And I know the franchise tag gives them immediately, I think, what? the average of the top 10 salaries at their position. But you look at positions like tight end and safety, you know, those, those players are only coming in around 10 to $11 million with those averages, and you're stuck with that team. Look at what Allen Robinson's going to have to go through in Chicago again. They don't even have a starting quarterback on that <laughs> roster. I do think it's a, very, it's a big disservice 
two players in a lot of ways. I think there's opportunities to maybe change some of these things, maybe limit how often you can be tagged even further than they already have. I definitely think it's more in the owner's favor than it is in the actual player's favor. Would you uh, consider, and this, people sound this, say this sounds crazy, but we've talked about it in the past, if you're going to package to maybe get a quarterback, how much would you th- how much would you put Darren Waller on a block? I mean, I definitely have him in the conversation. It depends how far you're going up. I think if you don't, you don't want to put Darren Waller, a first-round pick, and some other picks as well to go up and get the third or fourth best guy in this class. That's where you want to come up and get, maybe get the second best guy in this class. Because I think going up and trying to grab Justin Fields, Mac Jones, or Trey Lance, that's a situation where maybe you're risking too much. I, I, I do think that if you can make sure you get either a Zach Wilson or Justin Fields, two of the better franchise type of quarterbacks in this class after Trevor Lawrence, you have to consider it. Again, you have to think about the cap savings you get from getting a quarterback on a cost-controlled rookie deal. It is the proverbial lottery ticket, cheat code in the NFL, having a quarterback that's high-performing. Because a quarterback on a rookie contract can be top 12, top 14 in his position and be winning a lot of games because you're not paying him so much money and you can actually build around him. Look what the Buffalo Bills did. Josh Allen played at a very high level this past year and steadily improved, but they also added Stephon Diggs, John Brown, Cole Beasley, Daryl Williams, defensively, Micah Hyde. Like, they continue to pay a ton of players because they have a quarterback on a rookie deal. It is that important. I think you have to pursue that when you don't have a quarterback that can actually win with the supporting cast you have. Well, he is Austin Gale from Pro Football Focus. Again, follow him on Twitter at PFF underscore Austin Gale. Austin, we appreciate it as always. Awesome stuff, Austin. Thanks, man. So ah. there is Austin Gale. Trade up. Darren Waller, first-round pick. Derek Carr to get the number two overall pick. Oh, would they do it? I don't would know. The, would the Jets do it? Well, that, yeah, I mean, I, I think the question is, do the Jets say, no, we're fine. We'll take, uh, we'll take the kid from BYU, whoever the second-best second quarterback is. So you'd probably get a no from the Jets. But it'd be interesting if they threw it out there. I just, again... I can't see them doing that because I just pulling the trigger on that. As much as they talk about Waller and supposedly love Carr and first round picks, I just would never see them doing that. Well, yeah. And I, I think it, to me, it all goes back to the same sort of question is are the Raiders trying to win a Super Bowl or are the Raiders just trying to make the playoffs? And I think the right, Raiders are right. just simply trying to make the playoffs. And if you're going to just simply try and make the playoffs, you're bringing back Derek Carr and you're just trying right. to plug some holes on defense. Now, that doesn't really set you up to have any chance to win a Super Bowl in the future. Whereas if you're trying to win a Super Bowl, it's probably best to take a swing on somebody like Zach Wilson and see if they're great. And then you get them for five years for uh, just a few million dollars and you can yeah. build the rest of the roster out. So to me, it all, it all goes back to that same question. What are the Raiders trying to do? And I think they're just simply trying to make the playoffs next year yes. and nothing else. That's, that's, that's where the goals end for this team. Whereas if you're, again, like I asked Austin, John Gruden could probably tear it down and rebuild again. He could probably say, hey, let's let's just rip this out. We're not anywhere close to the Super Bowl. Let's pull it all out and let's go young and, and try to get some cheap assets here. But I don't. I, I think their goal is ultimately going to be, hey, let's get to the playoffs by any means necessary. And yeah. even if we lose in the first round, at least we made it, which is... Well, yeah, because they don't, they don't want to hear what's it, once in 17 years anymore. Yeah, they, you know, I mean, they, That's all the uh, people talk about. Which is fine. Listen, if you're an organization, you've been to the playoffs one time in 17 years, I'm okay if your goal is to simply make the playoffs. That, yeah. That's that's okay with me. That's fine. If, if your goal is not to win the Super Bowl, just, hey, let's end this damn drought. Let's get there so we can say 2-18 and 18 instead of 1-17. and 17. 
I'm okay with that. All right, coming up next. Oh, we got rule changes coming to minor league baseball. I I think they're going to ruin the game, Ed. They're going to take the shift away from me. I know. There is a silent terror in baseball, one which has never come to pass in the real world. It's the Press Box with Brady Fishaw on ESPN Las Vegas. The terror is this. There's no guarantee that a baseball game will ever end. There's no clock. It's absolutely possible for a pitcher to be so ineffective that outs are never recorded, and the game marches on, locked in a death spiral until the end of time. We've got rule changes coming to minor league baseball, the testing ground for major league baseball. So, we'll start with the first one. There are going to be no infield shifts allowed in double-A baseball, or at least not the dramatic shifts that you're used to seeing where the second baseman is in right field. The new rule for double-A baseball this year is that four infielders must have two feet on the infield dirt or the infield grass in front of it, when a ball is pitched. And that means you won't have infielders shifting into the outfield. You can still shift, like you can still put three infielders on one side of the field, but you can't have a guy in right field or left field to defend against an extreme pole hitter. The whole point of this is to increase balls in play, right? In Major League Baseball, we've seen extreme shifts and hitters have adjusted by simply trying to hit home runs over the shift uh this is to try to increase the amount of balls that are put in play so guys aren't simply just trying to hit home runs yeah i'm i've been a fan of the covid some of the covid rules like i love starting a guy in second base in extra innings just get it over with i i hate like 18 years just start the guy second i as i told you before i love dh in both leagues i think those are progressive progressive things the shift was a progressive move they couldn't figure it out. Guys didn't have the ability or the skill, uh, most of them, to try to go the other way. Uh, I hate this because, again, it's a progressive thing that you haven't been able to figure out. So now we're going to bring it back, or you know, we're gonna we're gonna lessen it uh, by making them be in the infield. I I'm not a fan of this. There's a lot of stuff they've talked about and stuff they're gonna do in the minor leagues at all levels this year that I'm a fan of, and I'm like, yeah. You know, I mean, do we want Angel Hernandez calling strikes or do I want a machine? I want the machine. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I, I'd i like the machine to call balls and strikes if, if it means him or the machine. So there's a lot of stuff they're going to try that I'm a big fan of. I am not a big fan of this. I, I think this is just admitting that your players either aren't skilled enough to beat it or you have too much whining and complaining from old-time managers or whoever who, you know, coach, you know, been coaching since the 60s and they hate it. Well, too bad. I, this This is the one thing I hate. It feels like anti-intelligence because the reason shifts exist is because teams have the information that says, hey, this guy yeah. hits the ball here, yeah. and we're going to put a fielder right there, so he always hits it there, we're going to get him out. Yeah, now he pulls teams, it all the time. Right. Now teams know where everybody hits it. It's not like spray charts are going away, no. but they're not going to be able to put an infielder right where the guy hits it. So it feels like anti-intelligence. I think the end result might be a little bit better of a product. So I I don't I, I don't hate what it might produce, but I hate it just feels like, hey, you guys got too smart for this game, so we're gonna make sure you guys can't play it at that level anymore. Now, a rule that I love that they're gonna put in at AAA this year, they are increasing the size of the bases. 
Normally, they're 15 inches by 15 inches. This year, the bases are going to be 18 inches by 18 inches. And the sole purpose here, the sole reason, is to encourage base stealing. So there's a bigger base. You can avoid tags easier and slide in safe while trying to yes! steal a base. And I listen, stolen bases have been killed off by analytics because you've got to like you've got to be like 85, 90% for it to be worthwhile to steal bases. Otherwise, just sit on first and wait for your teammate to hit a home run. So stolen bases have died because of analytics, but stolen bases are fun. Like stolen bases are something you should want in the game. It's a fun part of baseball. And I don't know if a bigger base actually changes much, but anything they can do to encourage base stealing, I'm I'm okay with it because stolen bases is one of the fun parts of the game that analytics have killed off. How many stolen bases in a given year would Henry Ruggs have? No, oh, that's all he could do. He's got to get on base. I know, I know. He's got. Oh, he's got to get on. That's the key. He, the he's, key is, you know, he's got to get on. But he's the classic center fielder that can only hit like yes. two fifty-seven. But you're like, man, yes. if we can just get that average up to two eighty, <laughs> two ninety, this guy's going to be a menace on the base ah, pass. And it's like, no, I can't do it. Can't get oh, on base. Um, the the other rule, uh, there's a single A league that is going to limit the amount of pickoffs that a pitcher can yeah. throw to first per yeah. runner. So you can only throw over twice per runner, which means, you know, okay, you threw over once. Now, do you waste your second pickoff move? Do you save it to keep the runner at bay? Like, pickoffs are the worst part of baseball. So if we could just I, ban those all together, that'd be fine. What do you think of the 15-second pitch count? I'm not, I, I, or, or between pitches. I'm, not, I'm okay with that, too. Anything to speed these things up? Yeah, we'll see how pitchers handle it. It should be fine. 